Take God's word with you this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We've been studying the life and times of Daniel the prophet. We've discovered that his name, Dan-El, El is of course the Hebrew word for God, means God is my judge. And this is a man who lived up to that name. He was a man who really could care less what people thought. He was a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. And we've seen that pleasing of the Lord in the midst of a pagan culture. Now, when you come to the ninth chapter, if you have any interest in Bible prophecy, and you should if you're born again, it's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Daniel 9 is God's outline, God's blueprint for the people of Israel. And it very clearly pictures how God will culminate human history as we know it through the Jewish people. And so this is one of the very, very important passages. Some have called it the Mount Everest of prophecy in all of the Old Testament because, among other things, it provides divine proof for the inspiration of God's Word. Prophecy really is history pre-written. And this is one of the reasons the liberals absolutely hate this book. And next to Genesis is the most attacked book in all of the Bible because the prophecies here are so specific. Now, if you remember when we first met Daniel in the opening chapter, he was just a youth somewhere around the age of 15, 16, 17 years of age when he's taken captive into Babylon. When we left him in chapter 6, he was an old man, possibly in his late 80s or early 90s. And if you follow the chronology of the book very carefully, the test of Daniel in the lion's den is really the capstone of his entire life. And yet, when you come to the end of the chapter, chapter 6 obviously does not end the book. There are 12 chapters in the Hebrew Bible. And so, how do we put this all together? Well, remember, there are some time gaps between the chapters, the first six chapters. We met him as a teenager. And we saw him in his 40s, and we saw him in his 60s, and we led, left him in, his, in the 6th chapter in his 80s. And the first six chapters follow chronologically. And by the way, chapters 7 through 12 happen chronologically, but they do not all happen chronologically, the events of 7 through 12, after 1 through 6. The events in 7 through 12, which happen chronologically, happen chronologically around the events of 1 through 6. So as you can see on this chart, the chapter opens with the captivity where they're carried away. The second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted. Then the image that he builds, builds to exalt himself. Then how God humbles him in his pride and I believe converted him. But before you come to the fifth chapter where Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire, there are two visions that are recorded that chronologically happen between these two chapters. The vision in chapter 7 of those beasts, we call it the times of the Gentiles, and the vision in chapter 8 of the ram and the he-goat. And then between chapters 5 and 6, between the fall to the Persians and the lion's den, is where the ninth chapter follows. And after chapter 6, we will see the rest of the book will follow. And if you don't think your way through that carefully, the book can become a little confusing to you. But all of the chronology and the dates are there for any thinking person to discover. Now, if you look at the first two verses of this chapter, it reminds us of the timing of this great prophecy. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuherus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. I hope you remember King Darius in chapter 5. He broke into a drunken party that King Belshazzar was having with the holy utensils from the Jerusalem temple. And we're told here in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So this vision here in chapter 9 happens sometime very close to Daniel's experience in the lion's den. That would mean, again, that he's possibly in his late 80s or even early 90s. And since this is the first year of Darius' reign, and these dates are firm in secular history, that's what's so amazing about the book of Daniel, and it's one of the reasons some of the secularists say it was written after the fact, but the dates match up, it tells me that 67 of the 70 years of captivity have been completed. 
Now remember, for 490 years, the Jewish people had disobeyed a command of God. He said every seventh year, the land was to rest for a year. And they were going to trust God with extra provision in the sixth year to provide for that seventh year. They were to allow the land to rest. But they disobeyed that for 490 years. So God said, if you won't give the land rest, I'll give it rest. And so that's why the captivity is 70 years long. It's not a number pulled out of the wind. But here's Daniel, and he recognizes that he is on the threshold of the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jeremiah had made concerning this 70 years. And so beginning in verse 20 until the end of the chapter, we see the prophecy as it comes. We studied the first 19 verses where you find Daniel agonizing and fasting in prayer for the people of Israel. He's confessing his own sins and the sins of the people. And then in answer to the prayer, God gives a prophecy that goes from the first coming of the Messiah all the way until his glorious sovereign second coming reign. Starting in verse 20, and we're going to review, it's going to make the sermon a little longer, but it's been a long time since we've been here in this ninth chapter, so let me try to bring it home. Verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people, my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Notice this angel, the one you know so well from the New Testament, is called the man Gabriel. Why is that? Because every time in the Scripture an angel appears, they always appeal, appear in male form. On Resurrection Sunday, Mary Magdalene sees two angels at the tomb. In the parallel account, they're called two men, and the word men is on air. It's gender-specific. And so angels, in spite of common art of our day and even medieval art, they always appear as males in the Bible. So the man Gabriel is described whom I had seen in the vision previously, and he came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Don't miss that. Here's a man who's in the world, but not of the world. He's praying at the time of the evening offering, which would be 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the exact time Jesus died on the cross. God had established a principle that because sin brings death, and since the life is in the blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Of course, the Old Testament sacrifices could not be efficacious in dealing with your sin, but they pictured what Messiah, what the Christ was going to do. And so he comes, he's on temple time, though the temple has been demolished for nearly 70 years, he's still thinking biblically because his heart is not in the world. And he says in verse 22 and 23, he, Gabriel, gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. That phrase insight with understanding is used throughout the book. Insight refers to revelation or to information that is received. Understanding is the unfolding, the explanation of that revelation. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication... The command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. He's not received the vision yet, but God is about to tell him what the vision is and explain it to him. Now, when you come to the vision here in verses 24 through 27, like other visions we have studied, this is a prophecy of things to come. And most consider verses 24 through 27 the high point of prophecy in the book of, of Daniel. And in many ways, it's the, it's the skeleton of, uh, that you hang biblical prophecy on throughout the Old Testament. So we are spending four Sundays. We've already spent two. This is the third Sunday. We saw last time that in these 70 weeks of prophecy, God pinpoints the precise time in which God will leave heaven and take on our humanity as the Messiah. So let me review some of the high points of it. And you may want to go back if you're new. I spent an hour and ten minutes. It was a long sermon, but this section cannot easily be broken down and, and understand it in just little small pieces. You've got to understand some of the units together. So you might want to go back and review, but first we studied the period of time, 70 weeks, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed. 
Now, if you see the word weeks, you see that there in the New American Standard. If you have the NASB, which is probably the most literal translation available to us in modern English today, you'll see a little number before the word weeks. And if you go out into the margin, it will say sevens. It's the Hebrew word shavuah. One English translation renders it 77s, and that's okay. The word Shavuah means weeks or sevens. It's probably best for you in your mind to think sevens every time you see this word weeks. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for you. Now, understand that the Jewish people had this word sevens, which is kind of like our word dozens. If I said to you, 70 dozen has been given to you, you'd say 70 dozen what? And so when you read 70 weeks or 77s, you want to ask 77s of what? Because in the Jewish mindset, there are two kinds of weeks. There's a weeks of days that most of us know and understand, and there's a weeks of years. In six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh you shall rest. And so they honored the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. And that's familiar to most of us, the week of days. We have a seven-day week. But what is not familiar to most Gentiles is the week of years. And so I went through very carefully last time, and I gave you three reasons from the Bible where, why he is dealing not with 70 weeks of days, but 70 weeks of years. And you can read of the weeks of years in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. So he's not talking about 70 sevens, 70 times seven or 490 days. He's talking about 70 sevens or 490 years. So he's looked in the back to 490 years of disobedience that resulted in a 70-year captivity. And now he's going to look ahead 490 years and what God is going to do. And he's going to describe events that will take us from the first coming all the way into the second coming of Christ. Now, that was the period of time spoken of. Then we talked a little bit about the people that were involved. Again, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Who are your people? Well, Daniel is Hebrew. So obviously, he's talking about your people, the Jews. This is a prophecy concerning the nation of Israel, not Gentiles, only as we relate to the Jewish people. And so if you want to understand prophecy, you have to understand the Jewish people. God brought the first coming of the Messiah through the Jewish people, and he will bring the second coming of the Messiah through the Jewish people. So first, he mentions your people, the Hebrew people. Then, in addition, he mentions two princes. Uh, The first of these two princes here in verse 25 is called Messiah the Prince. The word Messiah, Messiah, means an anointed one, but it's not... uh, it's not an anointed one, but is in the King James and the New American Standard and the HCSB, which is most precise. It says the anointed one. He's talking about not just any anointed one, but the Messiah, the anointed one. And of course, the one he is referring to in hindsight is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also speaks of another prince, the prince who is to come. Look at verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We will study this prince next time in full detail. And we will see he is very distinctly different from Messiah the prince. The prince who is to come will commit the abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to in Matthew chapter 24. We often know the prince who is to come as the Antichrist. All right? Now, beyond the period of time, beyond the people, we also studied the place that is involved. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. Now, there's only one holy city in all the Bible, and it is Jerusalem. And I believe with all my heart that Jerusalem is the most important city on the face of the earth. It's more important than Moscow or Washington or New Delhi or Tokyo or Paris or Rome or even Nashville. It is the most important city on the face of the earth. The psalmist said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of God, of our God, His holy mountain.'" 
He describes Jerusalem as the city of God, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. It was the place where God himself in all of his glory would come into the temple. It was the place in which the Lord Jesus ministered to in the streets and in the temple precincts. It was the city by which he was crucified. It was the city from which he was raised from the dead. It was the city from which he ascended from the Mount of Olives up into heaven. And it is the same city, the Bible says, at his second coming, he will literally plant his feet again on the same mountain he ascended from. And so let's briefly step through in light of this place, the purpose that God has as it relates to these people in this place. And if you remember, there are six purposes that are summarized beginning here in verse 24, and they are easily identifiable with six Hebrew infinitives that are introduced in our English Bibles with the word to. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city first to finish the transgression. Not a transgression, it's articular, the transgression. And what is the transgression of Israel? The fact that they rejected Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. But there's coming a day, as we will see, when that will end. One day, the transgression of rejecting Jesus will be finished. And that brings us to the second infinitive, to make an end of sin. You see, in their unbelief, the Hebrew people, like scores and millions of Gentiles across the planet, tried to earn their forgiveness. Paul, when he gives an explanation of why they rejected Jesus, one of the reasons in Romans chapter uh, 10 for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. To go to heaven, you need God's righteousness. And you can try to achieve your own by works, but God calls that rebellion. God asks us to submit ourselves to the righteousness that comes as a gift. So God spells it out. It will take 490 years to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Then the third purpose, to make atonement for iniquity. He's talking about the sins of the Hebrew people. He's talking about the Jewish people having their sins put away or atoned for. And as we studied in Romans 11, as we will study when we come to the book of Revelation, that is going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, in the last 70 years known as the Great Tribulation. After the church has been raptured, first the rapture, then the tribulation, then the second coming, there's going to be a great turning of the Jewish people across the planet. And fourth, that will bring in everlasting righteousness. He's referring to the millennial kingdom. The Bible speaks of the fact that God would literally reign on the throne of David, even at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Mary was told by this same angel, Gabriel, that her baby would occupy the throne of his father, David. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Most people have no idea what they're praying, but we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that day is going to happen when Jesus comes again. Notice the fifth infinitive, to seal up vision and prophecy. God is saying, this will wrap up all things. All that I predicted and prophesied will be fulfilled. And that's what God is working for, and that's what he will do. And six, when will God cross the last T and dot the final I? Well, he's going to do this when he seals up all prophecy, and then he will anoint the most holy place. What's that about? Well, we will see. It's about a temple that is yet to be built, not the tribulation temple that the Antichrist will defile, but another temple that will be built during the millennium in which God's people will go and worship in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount on the Sabbath day. Not because animal sacrifices are efficacious, but as a picture of what the Lord Jesus did and as a witness to babies of tribulation saints who are born during the time of uh, the reign of the Messiah. So someday, God is going to put his forever blessing on a final temple. Now that's the overall plan. That's the plan as it's spelled out. But Daniel is not satisfied with generalities, and I thank God that he was not, and that God went on and explained in detail how much of this will unfold. So he begins with four details of this coming plan. 
And the first deals with the commencement, when it all starts. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So when will the 77 and 70 weeks, the 490 years begin? God tells us. He says it will commence with the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So you can see on this next slide, I've entitled a critical dec decree. There's only one in Scripture that fits the bill, and it's the decree found in Nehemiah chapter 8, the decree of Artaxerxes Longamanus to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. It happened on Nisan 1, 445 B.C., or our Julian calendar, March the 14th, 445 B.C. And um, that is the starting date from the commandment to restore, the, the, the decree to restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. It's going to be 69 times 7 or 483 years. If you were here last time, you know what that meant. Uh, look on this next slide in verse 25. We find uh, two time frames, uh, one that is called seven weeks, seven times seven. Remember, weeks of years, not weeks of days. So seven times seven is 49, 49 years. And God says from the issuing of a decree to restore it and rebuild Jerusalem, it will take 49 years. Now, secular history records it took 49 years. Again, that's why they hate this book. Because the Jewish people and the church have always believed it was written in the 6th century B.C. And the liberals want to say it was written after the fact. That he was not Daniel the prophet, but Daniel the historian. But we will see before we're done with this book how that entire argument falls apart. But just as God said, it was rebuilt in 49 years. And as he prophesied in time of distress, and you can read of that in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah. So he gave the commencement of the count. He spoke of the construction of this city. Then he spoke of the coming of the Christ. Look again in verse 25. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're told precisely from the issuing of decree, which King Artaxerxes made, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? Yes, yeah, 69. 69 weeks of years, so 69 times 7 is 483 years from the issuing of the decree until Messiah the Prince. And so this is a mathematical prophecy. It's mind-blowing. Again, the liberals hate it. We know the date the decree was issued on. You count 483 years. Where does it bring you? It brings you to Palm Sunday. It brings you to that year when Jesus came into Jerusalem. You got the command, Nisan 1, 445 B.C. It brings you to Nisan 10, 32 A.D. Remember, this is in the 6th century B.C. He's saying in the future, there's going to be a king who's going to write a decree to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. And you can start counting from that. 483 years, a Messiah will come. And it brings us precisely in days to Nisan 10, or April the 6th, 32 AD, we call that in the Christian calendar Palm Sunday, when he came into Jerusalem and made his triumphal entry, and they laid those palms in front of him and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God says, I'm going to show you when Messiah the Prince is going to come. You can start counting from the decree of Artaxerxes, 173,880 days. That's why Jesus wept over the city. Unlike the wise men who knew is the time frame for the Messiah to come. Unlike Anna and Simeon in the temple who knew is the time frame for Messiah to come. The Jewish people in their unbelief missed him. Jesus said in Luke 19, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. This was their day. And had they just picked up and read the prophet Daniel, they would have recognized it. But as he says in Luke 19, 44, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, that's all by way of review. We're going to talk this morning, as you can see, about the great time out. Between the 69th week and the 70th week, there is a gap of time because the Jewish people did not recognize the day of their visitation. 
This is not some new teaching. You can go back to the church fathers of Arrhenius and Hippolytus and others who recognize and affirm this. And of course, Jesus affirmed it as well. So there in your note-taking outline. First, I want us to think about the crucifixion of the Christ. Notice what happened after Palm Sunday in verse 26. This is new ground. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After the 62 weeks, that's like saying after the 69th week, because 7 and 62 are brought together, the Messiah, the Messiah will be karat. Karat is the Hebrew word for execute. He will be cut off. There are numerous examples all the way through the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 8, one of the great prophetic passages on the crucifixion. Isaiah wrote, he was cut off. He was executed out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So Daniel is giving the time of the same prophecy that Isaiah wrote of. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Right here in the Old Testament, we have a prophecy that the Messiah, when he comes, is destined to be killed. That the Messiah is going to be executed, that he is going to be executed for a capital crime. This prophecy, of course, clearly points to the crucifixion of Christ. And this event is after the 62 weeks. At the end of the 69th week, the Messiah will be executed. And of course, you know, right after Palm Sunday, a few short days later, Jesus was nailed to a cross. So Daniel is told by Gabriel that all of this will happen, and he's told it centuries before Jesus ever leaves heaven and takes on our humanity. And so if you're a Hebrew today and you are looking for a good candidate for the Messiah, I have one for you. The Messiah is going to be executed, the Bible says, after the 69th week. And Daniel writes that when he is cut off, he will have nothing. You see those Hebrew words, have nothing? It refers to the absence of support or assistance. The anointed one is going to cut off, be cut off and have nothing. And you think about how he died. That day the heavens were blackened at noon till three And all of his disciples, whom he loved and cared for for three years, fled. As he hung on the cross, his own enemies mocked him and made fun of him and ridiculed him. His friends deserted him. His enemies mocked him. But then God the Father forsook God the Son. He shouted, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced not only physical death, but spiritual death on the cross, not for himself, but for my people, as Isaiah said, to whom the stroke was due. Isaiah wrote, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Hey, God wrote this hundreds of years ever before it happened. There's no such prophecy in any of the Hindu books or the Muslim books or any other religious books uh, that the Latter-day Saints or anybody else uses. There's only one book in the history of the world that has specific, accurate, detailed prophecy, and we call it the Holy Bible. Prophecy after prophecy has already come true. And those prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will literally come true. And people can laugh at the Bible and poke fun at the Bible and skirt its authority, but it is all coming true. Everything God said, He predicted the triumphal entry to the very day, Palm Sunday, Nisan 10. And just as the Passover lambs were brought from Bethlehem into Jerusalem through the Sheep Gate, Jesus on Palm Sunday, the one born in Bethlehem, came into the city, and just as those Passover lambs were inspected all week long, that they be in accordance with the law without spot or blemish, the Messiah, Mary's lamb, Mary had a little lamb, his fleece was indeed white as snow, and there they inspected him all week long, one group after another. One-third of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life, and it is not by accident. And so he comes from Bethlehem. 
He comes, this one, born in Bethlehem, into Jerusalem from Bethany the night before. And he comes, just as the prophet said, riding on a donkey only to be cut off. Now, that's the crucifixion of the Christ. Second, the collapse of the city. Let's think about the collapse of the city. Keep reading with me here in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the seven weeks, and then after the 62 weeks, two events specifically are told will happen. First, the Messiah will be cut off, will be crucified. Then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, Daniel recorded that the city, which contains the sanctuary, namely the city is Jerusalem, will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed along with the sanctuary or the temple where that city houses that temple. And this will be done, notice, by the people of the prince who is to come. Please notice, the prince will not do this, but the people of the prince who is to come will do it. Now, if you remember from Daniel chapter 7, there will be a revived Roman Empire at the end of time, a coalition of nations will come together, ten nations, then rising up among those ten nations will come an eleventh nation from which the Antichrist will come. And so Daniel has already taught us that the Antichrist, the little horn as he's referred to him, must be from the Roman people, from the Roman Empire. And of course, we have 2020 hindsight. We have that opportunity here because we know who the people were who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. After Messiah was cut off, 38 years later in 70 AD, Titus Vespucian, the general, came down and decimated the city. And so the people of the prince to come indeed were the Romans. Now on this next slide, this overview slide, follow with me, don't get lost in the weeds. In 924, we have the entire 70 weeks spelled out, the scope of the prophecy. In 925, he tells us what's going to happen in the first 69 weeks, so the first 483 years. In 926, he describes a gap of time. He doesn't spell out how long it is. It's an indiscriminate period of time. And then, as we will see next time, in Daniel 9:27, the clock will start again for the 70th week or the final seven years, bringing it to 490 years. So Daniel records this city that contains this sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Now follow this very, very carefully. Jesus comes in on the final day of the 69th week. We call it Palm Sunday. Then after, and you might want to circle those words in your Bible, then after, then after the 69th week, two events are going to happen. Messiah is going to be executed, and then the city is going to be destroyed. So 38 years later, Titus Vespucian, it's not a disputed date, it's one of the most documented dates in history, he comes down and totally destroys the city. So we know that there is a gap of time between these two dates. Now stay with me. No wonder Jesus, when he came in on Palm Sunday and he looked over the city, the Bible says he wept. Why did he weep? Well, let me read to you what he said. Remember, there's got to be a gap of time. If this was continuous, if the 70 weeks ran nonstop, then Nisan 10, 32 AD plus seven years would bring you to what year? 39 AD, right? What year was the city destroyed? 70 AD. So you know right off, well, it had to be at least 38 years. Messiah is cut off after the 69th week. The city is destroyed. And here we are 2,000 years later. And the 70th week still hasn't happened. And so as he drew near to the city, Luke 19.41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, what we call Palm Sunday, the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and you close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept, one, because they missed their Messiah and their unbelief and the forgiveness he could bring. 
but he also wept over his Jewish people because he knew the consequences of that decision. The general comes in in 70 AD, Josephus and other first century historians detail the events of what took place. Josephus records that Titus ordered the temple not to be destroyed. Tear apart the city, don't touch the temple. Remember, the temple that Herod built over the course of several decades was considered in the first century one of the seven major wonders of the ancient world. It was gorgeous. It was breathtaking. But someone in the course of the city being sieged that day set the temple on fire. And of course, if you know anything about the temple as it's described in the Bible, there's gold overlaid everywhere and there's a temple treasury where all these precious articles of gold are, 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 are stored and the fire comes and the tapestries and everything burn like a hot oven and all the gold melts and begins to seep down between the stones. And as Jesus prophesied on the Mount of Olives in Matthew, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The Roman soldiers could take as the spoils what they could find. And Josephus records they literally pried apart one rock from another and took all the gold. But that wasn't the half of it. Here in the middle of verse 26, the people of the prince to come, the Romans, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. And that's exactly what Titus did. The end came with a flood, not a flood of water, but this expression in the Bible refers to an army of great force. There are several examples. Let me give you one. You might want to put it in the margin. Isaiah 59, 19. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, we still use that expression. The spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. This great army came in to siege the city of Jerusalem. It came in with great power, and there was literally a flood of blood. Josephus reminds us that Titus slaughtered so many Jews that when it rained, the blood literally ran down the streets. Can you imagine the blood running down the streets of our city? He wrote this, this first century historian. The Temple Mount, by the way, if you go to Israel today, and you see the western wall. That's not part of the temple. That's just the platform on which the temple lay. The temple was on top of the mount. It was decimated. The temple mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. And so while the city is under siege, some attempt to escape, and everyone that attempted to escape, the Romans would catch them and crucify them right outside the city wall. On average, 500 people a day were being crucified, and they crucified so many Jewish people, they ran out of trees in Jerusalem. And Josephus and other historians note that over 1.1 million Jewish people were killed during the siege by Titus. And Daniel prophesied all of this would happen. The Messiah would be cut off and the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. And then he says, even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. What was Gabriel saying to Daniel? He's saying on this holy place, on this temple mount, where the sanctuary once was, it's going to be marked by war and desolations. Has that happened? Of course, history records it. It's the most disputed piece of property on the face of the earth, those 37 acres. No wonder Jesus wept knowing their unbelief, and knowing the consequences of their unbelief. God, the Father, His Spirit, obviously does not have a human body, so He doesn't have tear ducts. But the Scripture uses anthropomorphisms. God is often given human characteristics. The eyes of the Lord 
go to and fro through the whole earth, that God weeps, and God the Son who had tear ducts in our humanity literally cried, just as God wept, the Scripture says to the prophet Jeremiah, and just as he was deeply grieved in Noah's day, because our God is a feeling God. God groans beyond what words can express, and God cries beyond what tears can ever show. There's the crucifixion of the Christ. There's the collapse of the city, but then there's the construction of the church. Stay with me. The construction of the church. Now, Daniel doesn't say anything about the church because the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. But he is, um, but I'm going to take you a little bit ahead to the revelation and get you thinking in your mind what the Bible reveals in other passages is happening between the 69th and 70th week. As this slide shows, there is a, the next slide, a parenthesis, verse 25, the first 69 weeks, and verse 26 happens before verse 27. You say, well, that's obvious. You're being physicians. No, I'm really not. The first 69 weeks happen. In verse 25, the 70th week happens in verse 27, and there's a gap of time right now in which God is building His church. And of course, follow this. This is very, very important, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see this parenthesis in Scripture because there are some people, you know, you got guys like John Piper, I love him to death. He's a good brother. He preaches the gospel. Thank God. R.C. Sproul, love him to death. Glad he preaches the gospel, but they're both wrong on Israel. They think God is done with the Jewish people. They teach what's called replacement theology. So they have to have the 70 weeks running consecutively, which really messes them up because if it all has to be fulfilled by 39 AD, none of this stuff happened like they want to make it happen and they have to manipulate it and spiritualize the text and they destroy its meaning. But there are people today who basically come out of Roman Catholic theology, who say God is done with the Jewish people, the church is the new Israel. No, we are not. And so during this gap of time, between the 69th and the 70th week, God is working in a unique way. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. Circle that word and. It represents a Hebrew connective, bringing these two numbers together. God is emphasizing that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks ran consecutively, totaling 483 years, bringing you to the first Palm Sunday. But now I want you to see this third period of time described in the 70th week, separated by a large gap of time. The 70 week, the 70th week did not run consecutively with the 69th week. You say, how do you know that, pastor? We know that for at least three reasons. Reason number one, we're told here in Daniel 9.26 that after the 69th week and before the 70th week, two events will happen. Messiah will be cut off. He's not cut off in the first 69th week. After the 69th week, he's cut off, he's executed, and then the city is destroyed along with the sanctuary. And so obviously, if it ran consecutively, all of that would have had to have happened by 39 A.D. It did not. The, the sanctuary was destroyed in 70 A.D. So you know there's a gap of time of at least 38 years. And because we'll see in a moment the events of verse 27 yet, haven't yet happened, there's a gap of at least 2,000 plus years. That's reason number one. Second reason, there are other scriptural examples where there are gaps of time in prophecy. In other words, if I can find other clear scriptural examples where God has a gap of time in a prophetic passage, then I would probably have some assurance that I was not misrepresenting or misinterpreting Daniel 9. Most of you know Isaiah 9, verse 6. I gave you this many months ago. For a child will be born to us. We read it every Christmas. A son will be given to us. And the governments will rest on his shoulders. Hmm, that's interesting. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A baby's coming. I asked a man in my car not that long ago, do you believe Messiah is going to be God or just a man? He said, just a man. I said, what do you do with Isaiah 9, 6? A baby is going to be born, and the baby's name is called Mighty God. Then listen to verse 7. We never quote this one at Christmas. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Why don't we quote verse 7 at Christmas? 
Because there's never been a time in the truest sense where the governments of this world have rested on his shoulders, where he sat on the throne of David and he has upheld this world with justice and righteousness literally. And so many times in the Old Testament, in a single paragraph of Scripture, in a single verse of Scripture, both comings of the Messiah are recorded. Let me give you another text, Zechariah 9, verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a donkey. We quote that from the New Testament, right? Messiah came on a donkey, just as the prophet said. But what does the next verse say? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Has that ever happened? Of course not. It's a reference to the second coming of Messiah when he literally rules and reigns upon the earth. So lumped together in a single verse, you can have the portrait of Messiah as a suffering servant, but also as a reigning king. And of course, the Jews wanted to gravitate only towards the second portrait for obvious reasons. So as this next slide pictures, you see, God had shown some things very clearly, but remember, Revelation was being given progressively. So if you're an Old Testament Jew living in ancient times, and if you read the scripture carefully, you might see Golgotha or what we call Mount Calvary. Remember, Abraham had Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah, not by accident. He perfectly typifies by illustration what the Lord Jesus did. And where did Jesus die? On Mount Moriah. We call it Golgotha or Mount Calvary. He could see Mount Calvary and he could see clearly Mount Olivet where the Messiah will literally plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. First, he comes in the air. We shall be caught up together with them. But that's the rapture, but it is second coming. He plants his feet on the ground, but what they did not see is what Paul calls a mystery, something that was hidden and now been revealed that he tells us he is privileged to share with the church, that God is now building in this valley that was basically blind to them, the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It was a future program that he had. And so do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 21? Let me read it to you. Did you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes one of the great messianic psalms of the Bible, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He is speaking to the Jewish leaders and because they had rejected him as Lord and they failed to produce the fruit that demonstrated that he was their Lord, he said, I will give it to a nation or to a people. Interestingly, though there are tribes, tongues, and nations from across the planet that will be in heaven, when God describes the church, he describes them in a singular fashion ethnos. They are a people. They are a nation. Because in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor right, male nor female. We are one people that God has brought together. And during this interval of time, because of their unbelief, God is building his church. Let me give you another example of a gap of time. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Listen to verse 2 of Isaiah 61. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. Now, let me read to you Luke 4, where Jesus walks into the synagogue there in Nazareth as the visiting rabbi, he's handed the book or the scroll, better translated more literally, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Remember, no chapter and verse divisions. They had these books and scrolls, so he wants to read the text we just read from Isaiah 61. So obviously, he knew his Bible. He knew the thickness of that scroll. He knew how to find and to turn it up until he got to what we call Isaiah 61. And listen to what he reads. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then the Bible says he sat down, handed the scroll to the synagogue attendant. And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it had, but why didn't Jesus quote the rest of verse 2? Why did he stop at a comma? Why did he stop right in the middle of a verse? Why did he say, I've come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the next line about God's vengeance was left out? Because that is going to be fulfilled at his second coming when he comes to judge the living and the dead. So, there's evidences for a gap of time. Let me give you a third reason why there is an evidence. The very best expositor I know anywhere in the history of the church is Jesus Christ. And he recognized that there was a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, we call it the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives. Remember, it's the place he ascended to heaven from, it's the place he's coming back to at his second coming. And the disciples ask him this in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so here in ground zero, he unfolds for them what is going to happen in the future. Let me pick it up in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, not Daniel the historian. Jesus believed Daniel was a prophet. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, which tells me too, gives me some hope that this is understandable. It's not easy. If you're new to the Bible, we're not in the milk of the word today. We're in the meat of the world. We're, we're in deep truth today. But he says, let the reader understand when you see the abomination of desolation that this prophet Daniel wrote about, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. And we'll talk about that when we come to the Revelation. For then, for then, after the abomination of desolation, there will be great tribulation. There's tribulation in the first three years, but in the middle of the 70th week, there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. When this particular event happens, which we will study next week in the next verse of Daniel, the world is going to see turmoil like they've never seen it. You can take Hiroshima and multiply it a million times. You can take 9-11 and multiply it 10 million times. There is going to be trouble on the planet like we've never seen in the history of man. And yet Jesus connects this event, if you know the chapter, to his second coming. And so he recognizes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is still out there in the future yet to take place. So follow carefully. We've seen there are 490 years to this total prophecy. 483 years would transpire and then Messiah would be executed. The city and sanctuary would be destroyed. On the final day of the 69th week, he walks into Jerusalem. We call that Palm Sunday. Then the prophetic clock for Israel stops ticking. And God now is building his church. He's called a timeout. Paul speaks of it in Romans 11. We studied it a few years ago. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. He's talking in 9, 10, and 11 why it is that so many Jewish people do not believe in Jesus. And he describes because they harden their heart towards God, God in turn hardened their heart. But it's not a total hardening because not all Jews are in unbelief. Don't ever fix in your mind, I can't win this person to Jesus because they're Jewish. God can bring anyone to himself and not all Jews are unbelief. The man who had a significant impact in my life, apart from my brother Richard, was a man by the name of Ellis Goldstein, a believing Jew. In the last service, we had two believing Jews sitting here with us. And so, will the Jews have a change of heart? And the answer, as we will see next time, is yes, but not into the 70th week prophecy. He goes on in this verse, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... 
until, next slide, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, there are two important terms in your prophetic mind that you want to separate. One is the times of the Gentiles, and the other is the fullness of the Gentiles. There are two distinct terms. Jesus in Luke 21, 24 speaks of Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, when will the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled? Next chart. You can see it visually. We'll study it in detail. The times of the Gentiles started way back in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, just as the prophet had foretold of all these successive Gentile kingdoms that will rule over the Jews, in 586 B.C. the time of the Gentiles started and it will continue all the way to the second coming. That's why the Jews, even though in 1948 they became a nation... They're still oppressed by the Gentile nations of the world. And to this day, the United Nations do not recognize Jerusalem as their legitimate capital. But there's coming a time when the fullness of the Gentiles, which the New Testament describes as beginning on the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church, when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, then the final seven plus years will unfold and the times of the Gentiles will be over and Jesus will come back. Right now, for the most part, Jews are not the people in the world who are giving people the truth of God on how to be saved because there are very few Jews in the church. It's a largely Gentile body of people who are explaining the gospel around the world. But one of these days, it's all going to change. And the Jews are going to be back up on top. And God is going to use the Jewish people because of their mass conversion during the time of the Great Tribulation. In Acts 15, James says, uh, uh, the Apostle James says, Simeon, speaking of the Apostle Peter, that's his Hebrew name, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So right now, God is using the Gentiles. Now, very quickly, and I'll end this, beyond the construction of the church that God is building, there's the calling out of the church. There's the calling out of the church. There is a number known to God alone that will make the Gentile church full. The word fullness means to the brim. It's used 18 times in the New Testament. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the last Gentile is going to be saved, the rapture is going to happen. You say the rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's the term is not, at least in our English Bible, but it's in the Latin Bible. What was the most widely used translation in the church, in the history of the church? Latin. For a thousand years, they used the Latin Bible. And of course, the term comes from the Latin translation. We shall all be caught up. We will meet the Lord in the air. And one of these days, maybe it be a 10-year-old boy or an 82-year-old man, someone is going to give their heart to Jesus and God is going to say, that's it. The bride of Christ is complete. The church is full to the brim. You may go and receive your bride. And then shortly there later, the 70th week will happen. It's amazing. It could happen at any moment. There is nothing prophetically that has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to take place. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. We don't have the abomination of desolation. We don't have an antichrist yet. We don't have any of those things. Those are all things that can happen in the final seven years. But the rapture could happen today. No man knows the day or the hour of the rapture. God gives us an indiscriminate period of time in his wisdom. He doesn't give us the precise time in his wisdom. Why? Because he wants us to be found waiting and wanting and looking and serving until he comes again. So the coming of the Lord Jesus is sure. Just as God literally fulfilled every single prophecy for his first coming, he will literally fulfill every single prophecy for his second coming. The first time he came as a lowly servant on a donkey, the next time he comes, he is coming on a white charger, the Revelation says. The first time he came, he came to a tree. The next time he comes, he's coming to the throne of David. The first time he stood before Pilate, the next time Pilate and all people will stand before him. He came the first time as a suffering lamb, but he will come the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is coming and I hope you are ready for it. You say, I want to be ready, Pastor. How can I know? How can I be ready? Listen to me. If you don't get anything else, you may not understand this 70 weeks prophecy, but I'm not going to skip anything in the Bible. I'm going to preach through entire books. 
every verse, whether you like it or not. So come back next time. We'll be a little lighter, okay? But look, if you don't get anything else out, understand that salvation is not spelled do or don't. It's spelled done. You cannot work for salvation. You cannot try to become a Christian any more than you can try to become an elephant. You can try all you want, but it will never happen. Salvation is not something you earn. It is a gift that you receive. And you may not understand a whole lot, but if you understand that Jesus died instead of you in your place, proved He was able when He was raised from the dead, and if you are willing to trust Him as your Lord and Savior today, He will forgive you of every stain and blot of sin, and He will save you into an eternal relationship with Himself. But it's not based on your work. It's based on the finished work of the Messiah who was cut off, not for Himself, but for our sins in our place. So why don't you today put your faith, your trust, where God put your sin on the Lord Jesus. Our Holy Father, I thank you today for this text of Scripture. No man could have ever thought this book up. We stand in absolute awe of your word that you said you have exalted together with your name. I pray today that we would Heed the truth that is found here for prophecy is given not simply to make us, we know, smarter people, smarter sinners, but more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So help us to be alert. Help us to be ready. Help us, though we must deal with the temporal things of this life, help us to look not simply at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For you said the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Help us in this fresh new week to invest in the lives of men and women, telling them how they can be forgiven, discipling them. Help especially dads and moms this week to care for the souls of their little children, to protect them from the evil all around us, and to build into them the truth of your word. I pray today for someone who is here who is unsure of salvation Thank you that it is not something earned, but you said it is a gift to be received, not of works so that no one can brag. Help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. I ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.